Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be looking back to a particularly interesting Q&A session from the Investment Trust Conference last week. Uh, it's a section taken from Triple Point Energy Transitions presentation by Jonathan Hick, one of the fund managers there. So we start off uh, with a brief summary of the trust and then Jonathan goes into the Q&A session where he answers questions about their investment approach. They have a holistic approach to investing in the energy transition. He also talks about green hydrogen. And then we move on, uh, which is a particularly fascinating section, to the current state of the UK grid and what that means for renewable energy going forward. So uh, if anybody wants to listen to the full presentation, do check out the notes to this podcast because there will be a link through to the video section of the UK Investor Magazine website where you'll be able to see the presentation in full. So now I'm just going to pass you over to Jonathan Hick, who's a fund manager at Triple Point Energy Transition. So to wrap up, um, there's really three relevant points I hope you'll take away the tent. Uh, the first is that we think at a time of high energy prices, potential blackouts and, and scarcity of energy, it's really important to invest holistically across the energy system to get to net zero. We're pleased to be reducing consumer bills, improving energy resilience, and speeding the transition to net zero. And we do that in a way that minimizes risk to our investors through a high level of diversification by assets, by geography, by stage of development, and by revenue counterparty. And by focusing on those more niche areas, such as hydro rather than offshore wind, for example, we can focus on areas with reduced yield compression and more attractive risk-adjusted return characteristics to investors. So thank you for sticking around till quarter past seven to listen to me on a Tuesday evening. And, and obviously happy to um, conclude my remarks there and happy to take any questions that may be on the system. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're quite used to having people sticking around till half seven. And <laughs> we've seen no drop off through your, your presentation. Oh, so, good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I, um, I don't think there's any, anything that people are particularly uh, rushing to do. By the looks of it. So yeah, let's get <laughs> um, these questions. So again, just to go back quickly to the UK regulatory mm. thing, you know, you mentioned the 180 euros on, on the continent where you've got this um, cap on producers, right, selling their electricity. Mm. I don't think, but we've then, so in the UK, we're now going to have the, we've got the cap of the bills then, haven't we, where, you know, you can, yeah. I mean, surely there is no room to do both. That would be sort of squeezing at, at both ends, wouldn't it? I mean... I, I, yeah, I, I'm just yeah, trying um, to work this out. Yeah, it, it's, it's quite a complicated, complex. I mean, effectively, what's driving the higher price to you and me paying our electricity bill is the high gas prices in the market, right? And so I think the way we, I very briefly mentioned this short-run marginal cost, which sounds very nerdy in energy speak, but, but basically gas, if gas is expensive, it sets the price for all generations. So even if I'm a solar plant generating energy and i've not got a very high input cost i mean i haven't got any input cost it's the sunshine um ultimately yeah. um if gas is going for a very high rate because of war in ukraine etc then i can charge a higher rate of solar and so what the government's saying is well how do i separate that how do i ensure you know i'm trying to convince people to have a wind turbine near the house or believe in more solar so 
So should people be feeling the benefits of this supposedly cheap renewables that we always hear is the, is the cheapest form of energy? And the answer is absolutely they should, right? And despite managing a fund that owns generation assets, I, I do feel, you know, the profits that we're making are, are significantly higher than any reasonable base case. And it's not unreasonable for, in my view, some form of windfall tax. To my mind, that would be a better mechanism because it encourages reinvestment into energy transition rather than arbitrarily capping revenues. I think that's entirely appropriate. So you do need both, actually, to kind of both um, drive cheaper pricing in and to mitigate the impact of the gas high prices that we've seen um, through no fault of our own in, in broader geopolitics. So I think both. Are fair. Yeah. Which, and as you've touched upon, you know, it, it's that what, so 40% of our electricity roughly at the moment is gas generated, isn't it? Right. So as the gas prices go up, so and is, is that sort of proportionate then? Because I know the two, are, you, you said that the two are kind of coupled. As gas mm. prices go up, so does the kind of standard energy price. You know, is there a mechanism, at, you know, as we bring in more renewables, as is the government's ambition, we hear about, you know, ambitious stuff for wind, mm -hmm. the proportion of our electricity from gas goes down. Do the market mechanisms at the moment, would they then bring the price down with it, if that makes sense. They, they would a little, but you're still, if you still got gas on the system, then at various, yeah. it depends on, it will depend on the time of day is the, is the simple answer. But yes, well, if you still got gas in the system and if gas still sets the price, then at those times, if you're generating when there's gas is setting the price, you'll be able to make a super profit. So, so I think that, yeah, for sure, gas is, you know, a separation of the gas, separ se se you know, separating gas and, and renewable energy prices, I think, I can see why the government's attracted to it. And again, the previous speaker spoke about CFDs. There was a, there was a, it was mooted that they might move everyone to a, a contract for difference, where there's a sort of fixed price for renewables. That would be one way to do it. But I think legally, it's quite a challenging thing to do. Um, so I think you will start to see the price come down as more renewables um, enter the system. I think obviously the government's trying to accelerate that to happen even more quickly. Um, what it needs to do is make sure these changes in such a way that don't discourage investment in the UK, right? I mean, we all want international investors to invest in our energy system. And if Europe's capping it at 180 and we cap the revenues at 60, you know, guess where capital's going to flow? Uh, so I think it's really important that it's done in a way that is cognizant of the need to get, I think it's something like 50 billion pounds a year of investment to get to net zero per year in the UK. Um, and there's a question that's come through about hydropower. Is that something you're uh, enthusiastic about? Um, is it something that the UK is uh, well equipped for? I'm, I'm extremely enthusiastic about hydropower, despite sort of previously condescending what they look like when you turn up there after a long flight from London. But look, um, look, there's about 400 Runner River hydro um, sites in the UK. And to be honest, they, most, we don't think they yet work on a subsidy-free basis. They do in other territories, such as Scandinavia, for example. Um, so... I think probably in terms of run of river, um, I don't expect to see too much more there unless they're able to kind of bid into a, a subsidy scheme like contracts for difference or any potential future ones. There is opportunity, albeit again, not a high volume of opportunity in pumped storage. People talk about battery energy storage, lithium ion batteries is a brand new concept, but pumped storage has been around for, for decades. Um, and so that's effectively what's been providing flexibility previously. I think there's opportunities and there are plans for more pumped storage facilities I don't see significant growth in hydro in the UK, but obviously we've got a mandate to invest in Europe and we certainly see in certain territories such as Scandinavia, um, hydroelectric power being a really interesting opportunity there. Hmm. Um, another questioner has asked if you're affected by soaring lithium prices. 
I think anyone investing in batteries is invested, uh, is is dealing with soaring lithium prices and, and more broadly cost inflation across a range of other areas. I mean, transformers, which are the things that can adjust the voltage from your plant to the to the to the voltage on the grid, um, they're just got them in. There's a long lead time for those of about three years in some cases, and the costs have gone up significantly. So we're dealing with that across a broader range of. Uh, broader range of investment areas, to be honest with you. Um, what you're also seeing, of course, is higher prices that from a returns perspective is somewhat offsetting that. Um, particularly in terms of lithium, clearly the demand there is being principally driven by EVs. Um, you know, that is where most of the EV is going to go, but um, so lithium is going to go rather than stationary storage. Um, but I think for us, um, I guess, again, we're benefiting from higher revenues for battery storage. There's been rec record revenues achieved last year. And so to some extent, the revenue case is offsetting the slightly higher CapEx costs in that particular segment. Mm -hmm. That just ties in quite nicely to this this next question. You, know, you, knew, you mentioned that kind of rush for electrification. You know, you know the government's very enthusiastic about electric cars, electric trains, you know, um, electric vans, all of this. There are some people, though, that say that we've been too quick to overlook what they call sort of green hydrogen. Mm. Um, the question is asked about this, is green hydrogen on your radar? <laughs> and, you know, at risk of kind of getting you to kind of teach uh, some of us, like what exactly, because isn't there this idea that somehow this links up to the existing gas network? Oh, and you can, you yeah. know, yeah. So, right. At the risk of getting you to play teacher, what exactly is green hydrogen? You know, how excited should we be about it? I think it's fair to say this is, I would say a very hotly debated topic. Um, yeah. Some people will tell you that this is a scheme, uh, you know, pumped by the oil majors to, to enable them to, you know, take advantage of existing infrastructure and, and their existing operations. And I probably have a slightly more charitable view that green hydrogen, there's no silver bullet, first of all, in getting to net zero, full stop. I think um, hydrogen is, can play an important role in decarbonizing certain areas where electri electric, you know, cells don't work so so heavy goods vehicles for example don't really work with with batteries for example um you could see potentially it working in short-haul aviation you could see it certainly in decarbonizing shipping which is a really tricky one to decarbonize so in certain settings i do believe hydrogen has a really important role to play green hydrogen is where the hydrogen that you make comes from funny enough green power so that might be uh, an electrolyzer uh, connected to a wind turbine connected to a solar farm, the power comes from that renewable generation and turns into hydrogen. But you've got grey hydrogen, which I think is gas. You've got pink hydrogen, believe it or not, where the nuclear power is making um, hydrogen. So you've got all sorts of shades of hydrogen. But the end product is ultimately used as a as a fuel. I don't see it being relevant to road vehicles. I don't really see it being relevant personally to, to homes. I don't think we'll be sat here in 20 years right. with hydrogen boilers. Personally, I think you can get Currently, with the existing um, gas transmission network, about 20% blend of hydrogen in there. First of all, it's not really making a big difference, is it, in terms of reducing emissions. Um, and to actually get the whole thing to be 100% hydrogen, you need billions and billions of pounds. Um, heat mm. pumps, are, I think, are a better solution to that particular problem, despite um, poorly insulated ho housing stock in the UK. But green hydrogen has a really important role to play. So yes, it is on our radar. And in fact, we're looking at the moment in the two opportunities to invest in hydrogen electrolyzers connected to green generation, which will enable us to produce green hydrogen and sell them through an offtake or fixed price contract linked to inflation to um, someone who would use that in their business. So it is a really interesting area. Um, I think the previous book mentioned this as well. We, we see really good opportunities here and, and the government has actually put in place a pretty strong policy framework to enable investors in the UK to take advantage of those opportunities. That's good. Um, 
And speaking of frameworks, obviously you're, you mentioned investing on across Europe, that you've got the mandate to do that. You know, there's a lot going on with this, but I think ideally yeah, what you're looking for is this investment framework where there are sensible plans to get renewables and, you know, big investors can put up the capital and know that it's going, that supports their them to get it to the market. So with that, in, you know, are there any countries within Europe that you think are you know, best of class that we should be looking at from a kind of, also just from a policy regulatory yeah, yeah, yeah. angle, you know? Um, look, I think the UK is actually pretty, pretty, pretty good, right? I, I don't think we should be, you know, doing ourselves down. I, I think each, each country has its own slightly different, slightly different arrangements and some might be good for renewables, but less good for storage. We're very strong for sort of storage and those ancillary revenue streams that I talked about earlier. Um, that's a real credit to the electricity system operator in Ofgem. Uh, I think there's other, um areas where i think particularly around this revenue cap stuff that is creating policy uncertainty and clearly rima as i mentioned is also creating certainty but but look i think broadly governments across europe are quite are supportive i would say you know ireland in particular i would highlight as being a very attractive opportunity it's got some really ambitious targets for renewable penetration it's got some really ambitious targets therefore or requirements sorry for battery storage particularly given the lack of interconnection, which is the connections between Ireland and the UK and mainland Europe. So they've got to keep all the power they create on the island, on the island. Um, so I think Ireland in particular is, is particularly interesting at the moment, but I think all EU countries are actually pretty well placed given recent policy and are attractive to investors. I think the UK continues to be as long as it doesn't do something slightly short-termist, shall we say, on revenue caps or, or windfall taxes that discourages investment and makes it go to other geographies. Yes. Yeah. So when we hear about all these ambitious goals, sort of triple wind in, yeah. in 10 years or whatever, we shouldn't be too cynical about them. I, 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 we shouldn't be too cynical. The biggest challenge to energy transition, says everyone yeah. I think who I've bumped into in the sector, is actually grid connections. That is by far the biggest challenge. And it's the one that is a bit techie and a bit nerdy, and so people don't like to talk about as much, frankly. But it is by far the biggest challenge. And, and there's this sort of, you know, it takes you, I think, a year to sort of get a wind turbine to connect it up and to, you know, from, from production in a factory to sort of plugging it in. It takes seven years to get planning or typically for an onshore wind turbine. And that's if you can get a grid connection, because as I mentioned, they're in very short supply. We've seen a lot of pipeline with people offered connection dates. That's the date to connect their solar farm to the grid being moved from 2024 to 2031. You know, how can you bring up solar energy or wind energy onto the system if effectively the national grid is, to put it very crudely, saying, sorry, the transmission network's at full capacity, you can't plug in. You know, and then you've got, you know, returns being pushed back for many years for investors. You know, that's a real challenge. And if you're just a, a certain technology investor or just solar, just wind, you might be particularly impacted by that. We we see that behind the meter, that you know, the on-site stuff that I was talking about, well, that's less of a risk. We see that as being a really important part of that. Um, but the biggest challenge to get to net zero, for sure, is lack of grid capacity in the UK. And that's what Rima's sort of trying to solve to, to a large extent. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.